Uh, well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Jacksonville Presbyterian Church, and welcome to everybody who's watching the live stream. If you would remain standing for our reading from Scripture this morning, I know we're all out of the habit. Isn't it amazing? We are, uh, we are now a BYOB church. We are a bring-your-own-Bible kind of church. So I don't know if y'all use that acronym where y'all are from, but I do. But uh, God redeems all things, right? So with that in mind, we're looking at John 14 this morning. Uh, we took a couple weeks off last week. Uh, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, and if you remember, we looked at the work of the triune God. And guess what? We're going to see the triune God, the God of three and one, at work again in this passage. Uh, so we're looking at John chapter 14, verses 15 through 27. Uh, so with that in mind, Christian, hear the word of the Lord to us in John chapter 14, starting in verse 15. Uh, Jesus said, "'If you love me, you will keep my commandments.'" And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live in that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Spirit, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Amen. Would you be seated and keep your Bible open in front of you to John chapter 14. Let's pray. The Holy Spirit, would you give us ears to hear the words of Jesus Christ? Lord, would we understand all things? Would you cause your word to be remembered in our mind? And Lord, would you remind us that we have a reason to hope, your Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Father, thank you for the mercy and the grace that allows us to gather in person and online. Father, thank you for that gift. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, well, it's an honor and a privilege to gather back together with you, and uh, I, you know, I think I've said this before, but I've never gotten over how cool it is to be a pastor. I literally get paid to talk to you about Jesus, <laughs> which is amazing because he loves you more than anybody ever has ever loved you or ever will love you, and God has given us all things in Christ Jesus. Everything that you need to grow and to become who you are meant to be is found in Jesus Christ and in his spirit that dwells among us. 
Uh, so with that, I don't think it's at all a surprise uh, that you and I were called by the Spirit to study the words of the Holy Spirit this year in the Gospel of John. I have found it particularly helpful during this season to go through the Gospel of John, and I hope you found it particularly helpful as well. Uh, but as we've thought about this season, I have a quick question for you, if that's okay. Um, you know, do you think there's a whole lot of reason for hope right now in the world? you think there's a whole lot of reason for hope? Uh, anybody want to be really honest and say that maybe you've, like, decreased in your hope in the last couple of months? You know, how's your hope quotient? I need to write a best-selling book. It'll be in all the newsstands at the airport called the Hope Quotient, right? Has your hope quotient gone up or down lately? Uh, well, if it's gone down, I don't think you're alone, but I also think that the word of the Lord is speaking to us even today. Uh, after all, if you look down in John chapter 14, I want to remind you that we are in the upper room discourse right now. We're in a section of John uh, that uh, scholars call the upper room discourse, right? It's the talk that Jesus gave when he was in the upper room doing the Passover. And by the next day, of course, Jesus will be crucified and dead. And, and to remind you, I know it's been a few weeks, in the upper room discourse, remember Jesus washes his disciples' feet. He tells them one of them is going to betray him. They all think it could be them, right? He sends Judas Iscariot out, but nobody suspects Judas. Uh, they think he's going to go run an errand. And then, of course, uh, Jesus turns to the de facto leader of the disciples. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, you will deny me by morning time three times. And John chapter 13 during the season, it also tells us that Jesus himself was troubled in his spirit. And yet, in the midst of all of the anxiety and the stress that could potentially be affecting the disciples and that could be assaulting Jesus, Jesus turns and he says to the disciples twice, not just once, twice, let not your hearts be troubled. It's right there in verse 27. It's the last verse we read together. See it right there? Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. None as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled. And of course, Jesus had said that already in verse 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, so uh, I think the, the answer is, is there hope for this world? Uh, you know, I think there is. And I think what the passage is going to be showing you and I today is it's not a vague hope. Uh, it's, on a, it's on a hope that all of the things that are stressful or bad about this world are going to be fixed in the next month or two. Um, and I would even press pause uh, on just a second, and I want you to focus on the specific hope that Jesus offers in this passage. I think we have a lot of theological answers for why we should have hope, and I think they're true so far as they reflect the Bible. Uh, but I want you to focus specifically on what is it that Jesus is trying to get his disciples to see in this passage for why they should have hope. And if you can understand that, you'll see why today, even right now, whether you're in the room or you're at home, you and I should be brimming full of hope. Uh, anybody remember what the uh, memory verse for the year is? I don't know, maybe that's passive aggressive, because what if you don't? Then what are you supposed to say I'll take it back. I bet all of you remember the memory verse for this year. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the what? By the power of whom? Of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And you think when the Holy Spirit inspired those words, he just meant it for when you were employed and you had just gotten a raise? 
And when your kids got into their reach schools, you think that's the only time those words apply? You see, hope grows best in times of hardship. It's like a plant that grows best in the dead, dark soil of hardship and suffering. Paul was writing to Christians who were going through bouts of, you know, interspersant persecution. Uh, Christians whose life expectancies were drastically half of what our life expectancies are. He was talking to Christians in Rome who lived in apartments that were constantly catching on fire. They were constantly looked down. And yet Paul has the audacity to say that the power of the Holy Spirit in the face of anything that you see in this life can cause you to abound in hope. In fact, God is the God of hope. And Paul says it's all tied into the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And friends, that's exactly what Jesus is going to tell us in this passage. Look with me at verse 15 and following. So let's dive right in. We'll just go sort of section by section. Uh, Right off the bat, Jesus starts off this passage, and he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And of course, he's talking to his disciples, and he's not saying, you know, it's sort of this quid pro quo, like you believe and God's going to give you your due. And that's not all, all what he's saying. He's saying, if you love the Lord, you are the kind of person who obeys. And if you don't obey, it's because you don't really know or love the Lord. It's just a natural outgrowth of what you do, right? I mean, like if you love your kids, you will give them, you know, lunch today, right? Um, It's not this weird quid pro quo of anything. It's just that's just naturally what you do. You see, if you have come to realize that Jesus Christ died so that your sin would be atoned for and came back from the dead so that you would live forever with him, that changes you from the inside out, right? It humbles you. It lifts you up. And obedience uh, no longer becomes a bad word because you want to obey. You know, I'll never forget years ago, I was working at a summer camp, and I had never worked at a summer camp in my whole life. And I remember I was working with like eight-year-old kids. It was awesome. And what I loved so much about working with them was how, you know, genuinely uh, they wanted to have fun and please people. But very early on, I realized that there was a word I was not supposed to use when talking to children. In fact, the camp director one day came to us and said, hey, when you write postcards to the parents and telling them how great their kids are, you know, so they keep coming back every summer and paying, you know, when you write these, you know, postcards, don't use the word what in describing. You know what he said? He said, you cannot use the word obedient. (laughs) And he said, dogs are obedient. Don't tell a parent that their kid is obedient. Now, I don't know about you. I would, I dream, I daydream of the day by my, I pick up my kids from, you know, Sunday school and someone says, your kids are obedient, right? Um, I don't think my kids ever been accused of that. They've been accused of a lot, but I don't know if obedience (laughs) is one of the things. I love my kids, right? But is obedience in your mind, is it a bad thing or is it a really positive thing for which you to aspire to? Well, of course, it all depends on who you're being obedient to, right? You're not supposed to be you know, obedient to just any person. You know, I wouldn't say you're supposed to be obedient to me uh, insofar as I'm just a person. But as Christians, as people who love Jesus Christ, we aspire to be obedient to the teachings of Jesus. And, the, and of course, you know... <laughs> The, the, the ironic thing is, if the church is not obedient to Jesus, we do all kind of awful things, right? Uh, we, we condone the slave trade across the Atlantic because we're not obedient to the commands of Jesus. Of course, we look back at Christians in the past, and it's easy to see that they weren't obedient to the commands of Jesus, but 
The problem still remains the same. Are you and I yearning to be obedient to Jesus Christ? Now, Jesus says it starts off with love. That's the reason we obey his commandments. His commandments aren't burdensome. In fact, his commandments are the path of life. Right? So it's not a quid pro quo. It's just a natural outgrowth of your life. And the beautiful thing, and I think the reason Jesus brings this up, is if you have that kind of relationship with God, where you love him and you want to obey him, you know what Jesus says you want to fulfill, you want to do? Jesus says that if that's the kind of person you are, we have an incredible reason for hope. And it's right there in verse 16. And if you have your Bible, I would encourage you right now to draw the sign of the Trinity, which looks like this. Everybody get that? You could draw a three-leaf clover, but that would be bad. You could also, the Trinity is like a loop-de, loop-de, loop-de-de-loop, right? And what I want you to notice is any time, you know what I'm talking about? There's probably somebody here with that tattooed on their ankle or something that they regret. But I'm not going to ask you to reveal it or anything, right? But any time you see the work of the Trinity or the triune God, I'd encourage you to draw the sign of the Trinity next to that passage to remind yourself that we get to see the inner workings of God. We get to see the working of the triune God. And that can be kind of hard to understand because, you know, like I said last week, there's one God and yet somehow three persons. And so on, on one sense, when we look at God externally, like if we're here and God is over there, we see one being, but God is pleased to reveal his own inner working of how the Godhead works. And not on the outside, but within God, we see the three persons of the Trinity. And it's a profound honor to be uh, knowing of the inner working of God. And notice right here that the reason we have hope is because of the triune God. Jesus says in verse 16, Jesus, I, will ask the what? The Father, and he will give you another helper. Who's that? Well, Jesus says he's the spirit of truth. He's the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus asked the Father to send us the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus is talking about having reason for hope, our number one reason for hope is because we have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. Because Jesus earned our salvation and our righteousness and is pleased to bring us with him to the heavenly places. And God the Father has sent his own Holy Spirit to dwell within us. And of course, right there in verse 16, as you see the working of the Trinity, uh, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit right there, helper. And, you know, maybe your Bible translation has a, quite, a little bit of a different, uh, you know, translation on that word. Uh, you know, in Greek, it's called the parakletos, which means the advocate. And the reason they're different translations is because it's a big word that's hard to have a one-to-one -one ratio in English, right? There is a sense that uh, the Holy Spirit is our helper, but he's not, in subordinate, he's not subordinate to us, right? We don't, he's not like our servant. That's not what the helper is implying. Helper means helper in the truest sense, that the Holy Spirit is here to help us. And of course, uh, parakletos in Greek or, uh, you know, helper, the other understanding would be like an advocate or a counselor, and I don't mean counselor like the kind that you would sit on at a couch and, you know, and talk about your relationship, you know, with your mother, I mean, one another. I mean, counselor, someone got that. Someone got that. It doesn't mean counselor in the sense of like a therapist when it says he's our counselor. It doesn't mean he's like a therapist. It's actually a legal term. 
It would be like he's our legal counselor. He's the one who advocates for us. He stands up for us. He defends us from the accusations of Satan. He is on our side. He is the one who defends and strengthens us. In fact, that's why the King James originally translated it comforter, because in Latin that means the one who strengthens and advocates. It doesn't mean, you know, um, the only, if you think it's just a comforter, you know, you may think of like a quilt, you know, it's like, mm, you know, I got this like comforter around me and it's warm and it's pleasing. And uh, there is a sense that, you know, uh, the Holy Spirit comforts us, but that word helper there means more like advocate or defender. And what I want you to focus on, though, is also not only is the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, Jesus makes the point that how long is he going to be in you or with you? Well, look at verse 16. This is true of you, Christian. If you love Jesus, you have been baptized in his name, and you want to obey him. This is true for you right now. Jesus, the Son, has asked God the Father to give you his very own spirit, your helper, your advocate, your counselor, who is going to be with you forever. He's forever with you. He's with you even right now. In verse 17, Jesus goes on and he says he's the spirit of truth. He doesn't lie. He's not leading you down the wrong path. And then, of course, Jesus goes on in verse 17 and he says, whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells within you and will be in you. And what Jesus is pointing out right here, uh, and I, it's hard for us to accept this, I think, in some ways today, uh, which is that Jesus, when he envisions his kingdom and his people and what he's doing in this world, there is a line between his people and the world. Uh, you know, it's so sad to watch Christians. We sometimes try so hard to talk and act and eat and drink and dress and operate just like the world so that we can earn a hearing with the world to convince them not to be in the world anymore. Of course, there's some embedded tension right there, right? Jesus says we're not to be of the world. You know, the things of the world, you know, pride, uh, the desire of the eyes, the desire of the flesh, those things are all going away. You know, Jesus calls people out of the world to be a distinct new people. And that doesn't mean you need to dress like a weirdo or talk like a weirdo. That's not what it means to be called out of the world. I'm not calling you to be odd for odd's sake. What it means to be called out of the world in this context is it means you are indwelled with the very Spirit of God. Paul says in Romans that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. And then he goes on and he says, therefore, you need to abound in pessimism and realism and practicality and hedging your bets. Is that not right? That must be the new, new American standard. <laughs> no, what does he say? He says, abound in hope. I mean, the demarcation line between believers in this world, um, it's not, uh, you know, the matter of the kingdom is not eating and drinking, that's what Paul says. It's not a matter of, you know, being odd for odd's sake. The kingdom is one of power and the Holy Spirit. So the way that you and I are distinct is that God's Spirit is with us. Um, he shapes our understanding of what we're seeing. 
And guess what, Christian? That means that the world does not see things the way that we're going to see things. That they're not going to see God the way that we see God. That uh, Jesus is going to go on. He's going to say, look, the world is going to hate you. It hated me first. Why wouldn't it hate you? And of course, when I say the world, I'm not talking about, you know, I don't know, Crater Lake or the Rogue River. We're supposed to be like, oh, I just hate the world. This ugly river. That's not the world that John is talking about. When he says the world, what he means is the broken systems of humanity, right? The sinful world, right? It's, it's, all the, it's like the, the bad side of culture. Does that make sense? Now, anytime John says the word world, that's what he's referring to, the broken culture at work, right? The sinful reality that we have been called out of. And the difference between you and the world is that the Holy Spirit is guiding you forever to yearn to obey the commandments of Jesus. And the reason I, I bring this up, well, I'll get there in a second. Okay, let's keep going. The other thing that's great about the Holy Spirit, second point, is Jesus says he's not going to leave you as orphans. Did you catch that? Anybody feel like you're on your own right now? Anyone here trying to build a commune right now? I know there's some of you. I'm like, why don't we just buy some land, start a commune, get all weird. And then I look at Seattle and I'm like, never mind, that's a terrible idea. It's an awful idea. Don't do the commune thing, right? But I think for many of us as Christians, we have this sense that... Um, we think that if Jesus were here physically, things would be better. If I could just ask Jesus, then I would really know which way to go. If Jesus were alive, like really alive, like, you know, eating and drinking and eating fish still, then things would be better. Uh, the hard part, of course, is that that's like the opposite of what Jesus says. Jesus says later on that it's going to be better for you if he leaves to go to heaven and sends his Holy Spirit. And Jesus is reiterating this very point. He's going to leave in the sense that he's going to go to the cross. He's going to die. They can't follow him to the cross right now. And then he's going to one day be ascended into heaven. And he's going to be at the right hand of God the Father. But Jesus is very clear that I'm not leaving you. That this is actually a more profound way of knowing God and being connected to him right now today. This is why Jesus says, you should really be rejoicing if you understood what I was saying. I mean, that's what he says right there in, uh, I think it's verse uh, 28. He says, if you really loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. If you really knew what I was doing, if you had hope for this world, you'd see that this is actually better. And friends, I think there's uh, so much about this idea of being an orphan or adopted, that is so profound if you have words to hear, if you have ears to hear it. You know, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans, meaning we're not just in this world all by ourselves, trying to fend for ourselves. Uh, Jesus didn't abandon us. He's not just far away, sort of up in heaven, waiting for one day to return, and he's not going to do anything in the meantime. Jesus doesn't leave them as orphans. Jesus says, I will come to you. In verse 19, he says, Yet in a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Meaning, first off, yeah, I'm going to die, but I'm going to come back from the dead, and you're going to see me resurrected. 
And in that day, when you see me back from the dead, alive, and you see me eat fish, and you can put your hands through the holes and in my wounds, in verse 20, Jesus says, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and that you are in me, and I am in you. Jesus will say, then you'll really know that I come from God, and that I am God, and that through faith in me, you have a relationship with God. And then he repeats his point in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that's the one who loves me. And the one who loves me, I will love him back and I will manifest, I'll reveal myself to him. Of course, that's kind of a complicated sentence, right? So Judas, not the Iscariot one, one of the disciples, he says to Jesus, well, how are you going to do that? (laughs) What do you mean you're going to show yourself to the world but not show yourself to the world only to us? What is that supposed to mean? Well, Jesus answers and he says, basically, you'll see through the eyes of faith. If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, what Jesus says is the way you'll know me is that the father and I are going to dwell in you. The Holy Spirit is going to dwell in you. And not only are you disciples going to see me back from the dead, the Holy Spirit is going to dwell with you forever. And that's how you're going to know. Because you're not going to have to go to Jerusalem to inquire of the Lord. You're not going to have to go to the temple to find out what the wisdom of God is. The wisdom of God is going to dwell in you in his spirit. You see, in the Old Testament, there were certain people who had um, sort of special apportionments of the spirit. There were prophets who had more of God's spirit. But you know what's amazing about that is Moses actually says, if only all of God's people had God's spirit in them like I do. And that's exactly what the New Testament answers, is that hope, that all of God's people would have his spirit within them. Uh, if, If you think that when Jesus ascended, that Jesus was further from you, then you've misunderstood the ascension and the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, it's better for me to be ascended because now my Holy Spirit is gonna reside in every single believer. If you wanna know the mind of Christ Look to the Holy Spirit. So how am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to know the mind of Christ? Well, I think, unfortunately, uh, you know, Christians were more influenced by the world than oftentimes we influence the world. And, uh, you know, with the rise of sort of new age thought um, and sort of secularism, we've sort of relegated the Holy Spirit into some kind of like cosmic force in the world, right? We kind of think of him like gravity or like he is the power of the spoken word or he's the power of, you know, positive thinking, right? Um, I believe it, therefore I'm going to create it. But unfortunately, that's, you know, incredibly wrong. The Holy Spirit is a person who can be grieved, who can be offended, who, who can teach you things. I mean, gravity can teach you things, but not like that, right? I wouldn't say gravity taught me anything, right? Gravity is a force, but the Holy Spirit is not a force. He's a person. He's a person who teaches you, who advocates for you, who defends you. And notice specifically in this passage what Jesus says about his Holy Spirit. In verse 17, he calls him the what? The Spirit of Truth. Later on, Peter, who's in the room right now, will tell us, that the Holy Spirit carried along all of the authors of Scripture because no interpretation ever came out of someone's own mind, but they wrote as God the Holy Spirit inspired them. The book of Hebrews will constantly quote the Old Testament 
But instead of saying, you know, the author of the Old Testament said this, you know what it says? The Holy Spirit says, and then it quotes the Old Testament. You see, our interaction with the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And this brings me really to my last point in verse 25 and following, which is the Holy Spirit's primary work for our lives is bringing to mind the words of God, which are sitting in your lap right now. What does Jesus say? He says, these things I've spoken to you while I'm with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Hey, there's the Trinity again. He will teach you what? All things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. See, what Jesus is teaching us is the Holy Spirit was the one inspiring John. John is in the room. And have you ever wondered how John remembered all this stuff? I mean, how does he remember? How does he rightly repeat what Jesus says to him? Well, Jesus says it's a work of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is going to inspire you to write down the words of Scripture, John. It's going to inspire you, Peter, to write First and Second Peter. It's going to inspire you to write all of the New Testament. So our interaction with the Holy Spirit, it's not like a, you don't have to think of it like a force, like a superpower, you know, that some people have and some people don't. Our primary experience of the Holy Spirit is recognizing the voice of the Spirit, which is the Spirit of truth, which is God's Word. And just like the Holy Spirit brought to mind the words of Jesus, so too now the Holy Spirit's primary work for you and I is to bring to mind the teachings of Jesus. You know, the irony of the Holy Spirit uh, for so often, for many of us today, is we think we, we ignore the Holy Spirit because we just focus on Jesus. And yet, Jesus says that is the Holy Spirit's goal, is to glorify Jesus, to bring to mind the words of Jesus. Now, Jesus says, I'm not here to make much of myself, but to make much of the Father. The, the Father's words, I speak. And just like that, the Holy Spirit speaks the words of Christ and brings the attention to him. So friends, if you need reason for hope today for why you shouldn't be troubled, it may be that you've misplaced your hope. It may be that you've forgotten the hope of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you right now. Uh, let, me, let me answer it this way. Uh, you know, is, there, is there hope for this world right now? You know, is there a lot of hope right now? Well, it depends on, of course, what you're putting your hope in. And there is a sense, you know, that Jesus is coming back, and that is our hope. That is absolutely 100% of our hope, that Jesus Christ is returning bodily. But it's also true, more immediately true probably for you right now, that your hope is in that the Holy Spirit dwells within you right now. Right now, he is there. Right now, you have the mind of Christ. If you want to know what the Lord's calling you to do, he has spoken through his holy apostles and prophets. Now, Jesus is not far away. He's here with his spirit. Now, friends, that's an invitation to have a new kind of hope. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that where two or more are gathered in your name, you are among us. Uh, Father, thank you for the privilege uh, of gathering again. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would keep us safe, that we would be right in the center of your will. 
And Father, for all of us who are losing hope, uh, Father, would you cause us by the powerful working of your Holy Spirit to abound in hope. And would your word be a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. 